Mark 5, 21 to 24. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. And he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. All right, thank you, Rich. That's going to be the beginning part of our passage. We're going to go all the way through the end of chapter 5 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, which I hope you bring, each week we're gathering not to hear what I have to say, but what God has to say in his word. So please bring your Bibles, and we will be in Mark chapter 5. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you for the truths that we've just sung about how we are complete in you, and your righteousness has been given to us. And by faith, we lay hold of that. And so I just ask this morning that we would appreciate you again, uh, what you've done for us, the righteousness that you've given to us. Um, I pray that you would help us by faith to lay hold of you. Uh, for the non-Christian who is here this morning, I pray that you would give them that gift of faith. And for the Christian, I pray that you would continue to give them that faith to endure. Again, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a saying that goes like this, timing is everything. Uh, you've heard it said before, and you know, it's applied to things like a joke. There's a right time to crack a joke, and there's a wrong time to crack a joke. Uh, for investors, there's the right time to invest, and there's the wrong time to invest. For others, there's a right time to go on a diet. I don't know when that right time is, but uh, they say there's a right time for it. And all of this timing can be a bit of a frustration for us. I think one of the areas of life, just practical life, that timing becomes a frustration is when it comes to the airports. On one hand, we're told to be there on time, be there early, get your bags checked in, go through security, arrive at your gate in time for departure. Then you even board the plane and you sit on your seat. And then the dreaded announcement. Flight attendant gets on the intercom and says, folks, we're sorry, this is going to take a little bit more time. There's been a slight change in the timing of our departure. Air traffic control is telling us that we're going to be grounded for an additional 30 minutes. The worst part is when they don't give you a reason. And then after 35 minutes of sitting in that tube, they come back on the intercom and say, uh, folks, we just got an update from traffic control saying that we can't take off yet. Not the right time. There's an issue with the airport in Chicago. It's always Chicago. There's always problems in Chicago. We'll get back to you as soon as possible. And in the meantime, I'm thinking, but I need to get to my destination. I need to catch my connecting flight. Just take off and go. And yet the whole time, air traffic control is in communication with Chicago. And Chicago is saying, no, they're actually workers on the runway. They're throwing ice melt down, or they're fixing a pothole that's in the middle of the runway. They are addressing the issue in their timing. We don't know. And our delay is actually because somebody is in the know. Somebody is in control of what's going on, but it's frustrating, partly because it's just bad timing. 
partly because we can't see the big picture, partly because we have our own schedule in life and we want to press on with the needs that we see and keep going. Today's sermon is talking about God's sovereign timing in our life. God has a timing and a rhythm and a pace that he is working at, and he's working all things according to the counsel of his will. And sometimes, actually many times, God's timing seems very off. It can be frustrating at the very least, sometimes even very painful. When it comes to timing, I think about Psalm 13, verse 1, where David, the psalmist, and you can catch the timing here, he says, how long, he's in that duration of time, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Again, there's the issue of timing. How long will you hide your face from me? You and I face challenges in life, and if we're honest, we question God's timing. God, it wasn't supposed to happen this way or at this point in my life. I had plans for a season of time. Why did I get diagnosed with the Parkinson's? Why did I lose that family member then? We were, we were supposed to have more time together. Or God, my, my child right now, I was supposed to have children who were healthy, and now I see this child that has this debilitating disease, and my prayer request to you is not being answered right now. And we have to admit that God's timing and his plans are hard. And some of you are facing, right now this week, very challenging times. You're not up in air traffic control knowing what's going on. You're sitting on the runway, and you're saying, the timing of this really stinks. I don't like it. And so we go to God's word. And we ask the question, how would God's word have us respond when we live in the pain of God's timing? Well, here's the big idea this morning. When the timing of God in your life leaves you hurting, do not fear, only believe. When the timing of God in your life leaves you hurting, do not fear, only believe. We're going to see that in our passage this morning. I'll say it one more time. When the timing of God in your life leaves you hurting, do not fear, only believe. Now, if you're joining us, we are moving through the gospel of Mark. And in this particular section of Mark, Mark has been giving us several stories. Today, we're getting the third and the fourth story. And these four stories that have been strung together are presented for us to show the superiority of who Jesus is. And so you remember the first story back at the end of chapter 4 where Jesus is sailing across the Sea of Galilee. On their way, a storm whips up and these disciples who are actually fishermen, they have experience out on the water, they think their boat is going down to the bottom of the sea. And so they cry out to Jesus. Jesus wakes up from a nap. He says to the wind and the sea, just with his words, he says, be still. And there was a great calm that came upon the water. And we see Jesus' superiority over nature there. The next story, the beginning of chapter 5 that we covered last week, the next story was of a man who was possessed by demons, possibly 6,000 demons in this individual. 
And Jesus rose up on the beach there and shows his superiority over the demons. And we saw in Colossians 1 that he's actually created the angels, visible and invisible powers. And he stands up as the creator there on that beach over this demonic possessed man and casts those demons out of him. They end up going into 2,000 pigs that run down the hillside and drown in the sea. But it was Jesus, a story of Jesus' superiority over the demonic realm, the spiritual realm. And then this morning, we are looking at two stories that are woven together, that highlight the superiority of Jesus and help us know how to respond to God's timing. And so we're going to begin in verse 21, and point one of the sermon is simply this, a father who begs Jesus for help. A father who begs Jesus for help. So in verse 21, we're told the location. Jesus had been on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, over in the region of the Gadarenes. Now he's back on the west side. It says, when Jesus had crossed again the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. This is his normal location as he's doing his ministry. We'll see this over and over again. Verse 22, we're introduced to a key individual in the story. It's a man by the name of Jairus. He came to Jesus, and Mark says that Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue, meaning he would have been well-known in that community, well-respected. He would have tended to the synagogue. He would have carried out the maintenance uh, needs that were there. He would have been trusted by people in the community. And so here he is, someone with a bit of status, someone with some dignity. And what you see with this guy next is Jairus surprising us. Here's a dignified man, but he approaches Jesus, moving to him rather urgently in the middle of this crowd of people. So you can imagine a crowd of people down here surrounding Jesus, and Jairus makes his way through the crowd, and the text says that he falls down at Jesus' feet. And it reminds us of the previous story. You remember the demonic who came running down the beach to meet Jesus, and he throws himself down at Jesus' feet because he has a need. But this guy, Jairus, he's not demon-possessed. He's in his right mind. And as you're sitting there as a crowd, you're watching this dignified man work his way to Jesus, cast himself down at Jesus' feet, and verse 23 tells us why he is doing this. It says that he implored him. That same word, that word implored, is the same word that we saw earlier. It's the begging that's taking place. So Mark is just using some themes here. Just want you to know about that. Here's this esteemed man begging Jesus, and why is he casting himself down at Jesus' feet? It's what any loving dad would do. He says this, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And so here's Jairus, who on the west side of the Sea of Galilee has at least heard of Jesus' ministry. He knows that Jesus is capable of doing things that other people are not capable of doing, and now he's got a daughter who is at the point of death. This is the worst nightmare that any of you as parents can face, and some of you have gone through it. No parent likes to see their child suffer. I've got four kids, two boys, two girls. 
And my youngest right now is going through seasonal allergies, and you're going you're gonna to see him for probably the next couple of weeks. And if you look at him, you think he's just having a bad day, but he's not. He, he's just got allergies. His eyes are just puffy and red. And Chris and I are just like, I wish we could take the edge of that off of him and put that on us. It's, it's a parental thing that when you see your kids suffering, but there's a difference, isn't there, between boys and girls? Like, your boys are suffering, you're like, yeah, I kind of want to take that off you. But when your girls are suffering, you're like, oh, man. I remember Natalie having a fever, and it was creeping up high. And um, Chris is on the phone with the doctor, and she gets kind of listless, kind of lethargic, and you're worried, and it's okay, it's okay, stack this on top. And you just think, man, I wish I could take that on myself. Well, Jairus is seeing more than allergies. He's seeing more than a fever at this point. The text says that he comes to Jesus and he is urgent because he's saying, my daughter is at the point of death. That's the nightmare. And he's begging Jesus to come. And good news for Jairus, Jesus says, yes, I'll come. In verse 24, it says that he went with him. So you can imagine Jairus getting up off the ground, perhaps putting his arm around Jesus' arm and sort of leading him because the crowd is around him and saying, it's this way, it's back up the street, and we got to go down there a ways. Well, time is of the essence for Jairus. But in verse 24, something unexpected happens. Mark introduces us to a twist in the story. There's an unexpected delay. This leads us to point number two. A woman who believes Jesus can help. It's a woman who believes that Jesus can help. Let me read verses 24 down to 31. It says this. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you see, say, Who touched me? All right, so what's going on here? Remember, Jairus is walking with Jesus, leading him to his daughter who's at the point of death. And into this story arrives a woman. And in contrast to Jairus, She has no name. She's nameless. Jairus has status in the community. We know what his problem is. Here we are simply told about a nameless woman, but in verse 25, we're told why she has come. But pause there for just a moment. Do you feel what's going on with Jairus, who, kind of some speculation here, has his arm under Jesus' arm saying, come on, my daughter is over here. Jesus You need to be en route to save my daughter who is at the point of death. If you've been over to 
the hospitals or up in Muskegon, maybe over in Grand Rapids, every once in a while, you will be in there and you'll see doctors or a medical team moving quickly through the hospital. They're on call and something has just popped up where they need to get from point A to point B. And so you can imagine a doctor and his or her team running from one end of the hospital to the other because somebody is at the point of death over here. But then the doctor all of a sudden stops in the lobby for a moment because there's somebody who has a big bruise on their knee or maybe a cut on their arm. And the doctor stops, even though there's this urgent need that's taking place, but the doctor stops. It's a real need, but in terms of priority and timing, this stop makes absolutely no sense. Someone on the other end needs you right now. But it's as though Jesus is saying to Jairus, wait on my timing. You'll need to hold in that position, Jairus, for just a bit longer. This is not a mistake. I know what's best. Just trust me, Jairus. The timing and priority of God often makes no sense to us. We see a need in front of us, and we want God to intervene right now. Like Jairus, we're like, God, I've got this request. You need to come to my house and fix my problem ASAP. And yet God sees the big picture. He sees the end from the beginning, air traffic control. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Let's just look at this for a moment. God says this, I am God, and there is none like me. I'm declaring the end from the beginning. So notice from what has happened from the beginning all the way to the end is being declared. And notice next, from ancient times, from times long ago, from times before we ever came here, what is God doing? He's declared these things that are not yet done that are still coming. And he says this, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all of my purposes, even if it means that I have to put you, Jairus, on hold for just a moment because my counsel will stand. It's good for us to rest in this truth. God has declared the end from the beginning. God has never responded to Jairus or people like Jairus with surprise and said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I missed the timing on that in your life. God never messed up because what's happening in your life right now has been declared from the ancient of times long ago, and now it's unfolding. What happens tomorrow has been declared from the ancient of times. God is in control of everything that's going on, and we need to just perk up our ears and say, okay, God, I hear your word right now. He will accomplish his purposes. So back to the woman in the story. Jesus has paused We can feel the tension that Jairus is feeling over here on the side, but let's focus on the woman for just a moment. The text says that she has had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Instead of a regular monthly cycle with reprieve and time for the body to recover, this woman was losing blood constantly. 12 years, 12 long years. It's a long time, 4,380 days. Every day she wakes up and has the same issue. Would it clear up today? Nope. Tomorrow? Nope. Again, no. In Jewish law, this wasn't just simply a physical condition that she had to bear. 
This was also a social condition that she was living under. Leviticus 15, verses 19 through 21 says this. When a woman has a discharge, and the discharge in her body is bloody, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days. And then catch this next part. Whoever touches her, and that's not sexual touch because later on in the passage it talks about sexual touch. Whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. So anybody who comes into contact with her has to wait until the next day in order to be part of society, if you will, again. Everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. So you get the picture here for her that she's living out day after day, 4,380 days. This is Jewish law. People were not to come into contact with her. And so you can imagine how heavy and how hard this has been for her. She's been on the outside fringes of Jewish society for years. Not only had this been happening for 12 years, but the text tells us that she has exhausted all of her options. In verse 26, it says that she had suffered much under many physicians. And without getting too far off track, you can imagine what first century physicians would have told her to try or who would have tried on her. She had also spent everything, the text says. Every last penny of hers had gone. It means that she had made this a priority. She wanted to be healed. But then in her spending, the text says that she had only gotten worse from the condition. So things are continually going downhill. But in verse 27, it says she had heard the reports about Jesus. Now, what would these reports have been that she had heard about Jesus? Well, we've covered these reports in the book of Mark. We heard about a man who had a crippled hand, and Jesus just spoke the word, and his hand was opened up. We heard about a, a man who was lowered down through a roof while Jesus was teaching, and he was a paralytic. And Jesus commanded his paralysis to be gone, and his sins were forgiven. We've heard about people who have been demon-possessed, and then nameless others in phrases where it just says, Jesus healed many people. So this woman has heard about Jesus, but she's not like Jairus. Here's Jairus who still has a need. She's not like Jairus. She's just coming up behind him and touching his garments, perhaps making Jesus unclean. It's not anything new to Jesus to be around unclean people. We saw at the end of chapter 1, or chapter 2, I believe it was, where Mark or Jesus touched a leper and the lepers were considered unclean and this leper comes up to Jesus in a state of uncleanness and he says if you will you can make me clean and Jesus went beyond all the Jewish norms the Jewish law and he reached out his hand and touched the unclean person just real quickly we are not under the Old Testament law that era that age has come to an end through Christ obeying perfectly the law, and he fulfilled the law for us. So how, how should we look at this uncleanness? The Bible uses these episodes of uncleanness to actually be a parallel or a picture of our sin. We have sin, we have uncleanness, and we need Jesus to come into our lives and make us clean. So 1 John 1, 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light... 
We have fellowship with one another, and here it is. The blood of Jesus, his son, the life of Jesus, he cleanses us from all sin. So only through the blood of Jesus can the uncleanness of our sin be clean. In verse 28, we continue with the story. She said, if I just touch even his garments, I will be made well. And here we see her faith. She's just going to reach out and just touch his garments in faith. And she knows, she knows that if she does, she'll be healed. And the text says in verse 29, that she, it says that immediately when she had touched him, I'm sorry, verse, yeah, verse 29, the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So 12 years, all of this time that she's been going through of uncleanness, of this disease, has now come to an end. And, and somehow she knows it within her. She can feel that she's been healed. And you see this crowd going along, and there's this woman who just comes up and just taps him. And you can imagine that that nameless woman who knows she's been healed just wants that crowd to keep on going. And she would probably just pause there and have tears of rejoicing and just be thankful. But that's not how it goes. In verse 30, Mark tells us something else that happens. Verse 30, it says that Jesus perceiving in himself his knowledge, he knows that power had gone out from him. And notice again, Mark's favorite word, immediately he turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garment? So the woman has come up behind him, touched him. She knows she is healed. And in that same moment, Jesus pauses. The crowd doesn't go anywhere. And he turns and he says, who touched me? In verse 31, the disciples, they're ever the realists. They say, well, look at this crowd that's around you. Come on now. It could have been any one of these people like, here's Jairus. Let's keep going. Any of these people could have touched you. And in verse 32, there's something interesting that takes place here. It says this. In our English Standard Versions, if you're following with me in the ESV, it says, and he looked around to, had see, to see who had done it. Now, some of you have a New American Standard Bible, and it reads a little bit differently. It says this, he looked around to see the woman who had done this. And the reason why, for those of you who study Greek, is that the Greek is using a feminine article and a feminine participle right here. He looked around to see the feminine one who had done this. And I don't want to get too hung up on this, but personally, I think Jesus knew. And Jesus is turning around to draw this woman out in response here. In verse 33, it says, But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. So here we see the confession of the woman's faith in Jesus. She told him everything. Uncleanness about the last 12 years. She told him that she was the one who just reached forward and touched him, believing that she could be healed. She comes clean with her belief that Jesus could heal her. And in verse 34, Jesus says this to her. Daughter. And remember, Jairus has got a daughter whom he cares about. Jesus looks at this lady as his daughter. And he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. 
And you can't help but think, for somebody who has been in this time of 12 years, she's purified. She's healed up. She's approached Jesus in faith. And because of that faith, she hears this Savior say to her, you have been saved. You have been made well. Now, this leaves several questions for us. One question is this. Are we supposed to operate like this? I mean, if I got a migraine headache that lasts for a week, am I supposed to gin up enough faith that if I cry out to Jesus, he is going to turn to me and say, because of your faith and because you've named your migraine headache, you will be healed? Is that what this passage is teaching? Because there is a theology out there under this umbrella called the prosperity gospel that basically says, name it and claim it, man. If you believe enough, if you got enough belief, and if you don't, sorry, you just don't have enough belief. Are we supposed to believe that? No, we're not supposed to believe that Jesus will just spontaneously heal our diseases if we name it and claim it, but we do pray about this. Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so we pray for one another. We pray for healing to take place. We have a prayer letter that goes out in the middle of the week. But that's not the point of this passage. So what's Mark's point here with this going on? Several things are going on. You remember how I told you that we are seeing the superiority of Jesus. From the beginning of Mark's gospel, he's been telling us, this is Jesus, the Son of God. Now let me give you arguments that prove he's the Son of God. And this is one of them. Another reason why Mark has this here is to go back to what I touched on with uncleanness earlier. This is giving us a picture of our own saving faith. The need for saving faith. When Jesus says here in verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you well, in the original text, in the Greek text here, it's the word for saved. It's sozo here. And as you're reading through this, some of your translations might even say, you've been saved. Your faith has made you well. And as we're reading through these, we're reminded that this is what saving faith can be illustrated by. Coming to Jesus and laying hold of him in faith. Nothing else. I'm I'm not going over to this, you know, kind of works-based thing over here to be healed. I'm not going to try to gin up enough kind of faith so that it, it hits like this meter of perfect and complete. I'm just going to Jesus right here, and I'm laying hold of him. And Jesus turns around to us and says, if you have laid hold of me in faith, you too will be saved from your uncleanness, from your sins. And so if you're a non-Christian here this morning, this is just a beautiful picture here of what you need to do in your own heart, knowing that you have sickness, sin in your life, and that you would lay hold of Jesus as your Savior, who alone can make you well because of his righteousness. And so we have faith in him. But the story is not quite done because Jairus is still there. This leads us on to our third point here. That Jesus leads us to our ultimate need. 
Jesus leads us to our ultimate need, and that is faith. You see here in verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said to Jairus, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And if you put yourself in Jairus's shoes, who may have had his arm under Jesus's arm, leading him along with haste, having to pause for this season of time here, knowing that this lady has been healed, but now hearing that the nightmare has become a reality. My daughter is dead. She's gone. This woman is healed, but if Jesus would have moved more quickly, he could have saved my daughter. And maybe in that moment, I would have been angry, asking the question, why did you delay? Why didn't you come in time to help my daughter? But in verse 36, Jesus hears what has been said to Jairus. And he says some very off-the-wall words. Overhearing what they said, some of your translations say ignoring what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, no doubt locking eyes with him, do not fear, only believe. And I think, wow, what gall. This guy has just lost his daughter. Now he's looking at the dark days ahead, wondering, fearing how he will face this awful reality. A hole has just been punctured into his heart. It's the deepest pain that anyone could ever carry. And Jesus says to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. In this moment, Jairus is brought to a test. Because faith says that God is real and what he says is true and best Will he walk in faith or will he walk in fear? So Jesus goes to the house of Jairus, brings Peter, James, and John with him. And when he arrives at the house, there is a heaviness that's there. It says in verse 38 that he saw a commotion. People were weeping and wailing loudly. And in Jewish culture, sometimes they would hire professional mourners to help them actually go forward with their mourning. And so as Jesus approaches, he hears the shrieks, he hears the cries. And then he says something that I could never say to anyone. I've shown up at places where people have just passed or even been there when they have passed. And Jesus says this, why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. I mean, whoa. Um, don't think that just because these folks lived 2,000 years ago that they didn't know how to check a pulse. Don't assume that they were kind of dunces because they were living back then. They knew what a dead body was like. And when Jesus says, the child is not dead but sleeping, it says that some laughed at him, has the idea of scorning or mocking him. It's what we see when Jesus goes to the cross and he's suffering for our sins and people are mocking him. 
In any other scenario, these words would seem outlandish. But Jesus proceeds. And he takes them, that's probably Peter, James, and John, Jairus, and the mother, and they go into where the child is. In verse 41, it says, he reaches down, he takes the girl by the hand. And he says to her, Talitha Kumai, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Another daughter now. Another daughter has been saved. The woman with the issue of blood saved after 12 years. This little girl, 12 years old, immediately resurrected. And now you can remember Jesus' words to Jairus. Do not fear, only believe. So as we read these words, I can't help but think about the reality of Jesus' power and superiority over death. And we hear these words, do not fear, only believe. Three weeks ago, we celebrated Easter. There was the earthquake. The stone rolled away from the tomb. The ladies showed up and Jesus was gone. The resurrection had taken place. Earlier in the service, we read from Ephesians chapter 1 about the power of the resurrection that God has in which he works in us for our salvation. And now we're reading this passage about God powerfully working in this little 12-year-old girl for resurrection. And what we're seeing is that Jesus, the Son of God, he has power over death. And this portion in Mark begs us, it implores us, do not fear, only believe. Unless Jesus comes back, a day is coming in which every one of us will die. Our lives will end and our funerals will be planned and our kids will be there and they will mourn and weep. It's coming for all of us. And before that day, many of us will attend the funeral of our beloved ones, perhaps even a child, and will mourn and will weep. And Jesus' words are here, do not fear, only believe. And why could he say that? He can say that because those who are in Christ are only sleeping, meaning this, that death will not be ultimate for those in whom, whose lives Christ is at work. Those whom God saves, death is never ultimate. So the Bible can say in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, how? As others who have no hope. Some people have no hope. They have no faith in Jesus as the Son of God. But we are like this woman who approached Jesus in faith. We believe in him for the forgiveness of our sins. We have hope. And when you think about Jesus as your salvation, there's many gifts. There's the forgiveness of sins, there's justification. You've been declared right. There's the presence of the Holy Spirit in your lives. And there is the resurrection. Why? Because Jesus is superior over death. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... 
For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body, this body that we have right now that dies, must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body, this fleshly body, must put on immortality, eternal life. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. The victory of Jesus being superior over death. And so we can look at death and say, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Because those who are in Christ share in the victory that Christ has over death. So do not fear, only believe. We don't understand the timing of God. We do not understand the logic of how he arranges his priorities. If we were writing the orders for Jesus, we would have had him blowing right past the woman with the issue of blood and had him rushing to save a dying little girl. But this was God's timing. We don't write the script for our lives. He does. And so in response, he says, do not fear, only believe. When God's timing challenges your life and leaves you in that season of hurt, it could be death. For some of you, it's not the death of someone, it's the death of your hopes that you had had. You're looking at life and you're saying, it wasn't supposed to be this way. My marriage wasn't supposed to be this way. It's like my marriage has died. God, I've been walking in obedience to you. How can that happen to me? Or it's your health. You never saw the stroke coming. You never saw the diagnosis coming. You never saw this. And it's not death, but it's something in your life. And you say, God, that wasn't supposed to happen to me right now. I had plans for the future. Or it could be someone in your life who's close, passes away. Jesus would say, do not fear, only believe. And so the truth of this passage helps us look at Jesus. And it reminds us that he is the son of God. He is the son of God who rises up over nature. He is the son of God who rises up over disease. He is the son of God who rises up over the demons. He's the son of God who rises up over death and has power over death. Are you believing in him? And since this is who Jesus is, the application for us this morning is that when God's timing leaves you in hurt, do not fear. It's okay to be hurt. That happens. Only believe. Because someday all Christians will be united together. We will live in the eternal reality of the resurrection being brought back together through Christ. And so we will ever be with the Lord. So when the day of Jairus strikes your life, we walk away hearing Jesus' words, do not fear, only believe. Let's pray. With your heads bowed, you can talk to the Lord in the quietness of your heart. Christian, we have those days. 
some more than others, some more severe than others. And so can you just, in the quietness of your heart, cry out to God about your pain? And again, affirm, yes, God, I do believe. I'm not walking away. I do believe. Non-Christian, you're here this morning, and you should respond to God's word. He loves you. He cares for you. The Bible tells us that he has died for our uncleanness, our sin. And by faith alone in Jesus, we are taken from a place of being spiritually unclean. All of our sins, past, present, and even future, Jesus takes upon himself and gives us the gift of his righteousness and makes us clean. Even this morning, you could cry out to faith in the quietness of your heart, Jesus, I believe. I believe in you as my Savior. Just right now, in the quietness of your heart, you can talk to God, and I'll come back and pray. God, I pray that this week we would walk by faith and not by sight, even in our pain, even in our hurt, our suffering. I pray that we would not let go of you, that spiritually our hands would lay hold of you in faith, believing that you are real and what you say is true and it's best for our lives. So please help us with that even this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.